here now we come to um, number seven in this series, the attributes of God. And this session is about the holiness of God. How dread are thine eternal years, O everlasting Lord, by prostrate spirits day and night, incessantly adored. How beautiful, how beautiful the sight of thee must be. Thine endless wisdom, boundless power, and awful purity. Oh, how I fear thee, living God, with deepest, tenderest fears, and worship thee with trembling hope and penitential tears. Yet I may love thee too, O Lord, almighty as thou art, for thou hast stooped to ask of me the love of my poor heart. O oh, then this worse than worthless heart in pity deign to take, and make it love thee for thyself and for thy glory's sake. No earthly father loves like thee, no mother half so mild, bears and forbears as thou hast done with me, thy sinful child. That's an old hymn by a man called Frederick William Faber. Let's pray before we begin, shall we? Father, it's my desire to magnify you, the creator and sustainer of all that is made, the ancient of days, the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and lord of lords, before whom every knee must bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. As I come into the brightness of your presence, I cry with Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the presence of people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There is too much light, and I am overcome. Lord, grant us that from this session we may develop a right awe, reverence and fear of you, and understand in some small part the amazing beauty of your holiness. In Jesus' name. Amen. This uh, is an awesome subject to seek to explain because we can't explain it. It's literally too high for us. And like others before me, I tremble to even attempt it, but attempt it I must. When we come to the subject of holiness, we're on ground that is holy and we need, if not literally, but certainly spiritually, to remove our shoes or we may inadvertently venture where angels fear to tread. Holiness is best understood by what it is not than what it is. It's a quality totally outside our understanding, but we need to grasp something of its magnitude if we are to have in these perilous days a right view of God that contains the proper fear and reverence due his holy name. Holiness embodies absolute righteousness and justice, qualities so other than us we really cannot grasp them. We have a little righteousness and a small amount of justice, but God is both, and he doesn't possess them, he embodies them. They are who he is. This stunning quality, the holiness of God, is marked out in the Bible as a very special attribute. It's the jewel in his character. There is no other attribute that appears so often. There are over 430 references in the Bible to God's holiness. It is perhaps the most mentioned descriptive word that is used of him. The root of the word is completeness or perfection. 
sound, uninjured, healthy, entire and complete, whole, perfect, holy. A.W. Tozer in one of his books said this, He is the being of beings. His supreme perfection is the perfection of all perfections. He is the Holy One. His holiness shines on all his other attributes and casts luster on them. He is called the Holy One, or by the Hebrews, the Holy, the separated one, the one who is apart, totally other than his creation. God has made holiness the moral condition necessary for the health of the universe. To preserve his creation, God must destroy whatever would destroy it. His holiness is at war with the forces of darkness that lead to sickness and death. His wrath is but a reflection of his utter abhorrence of whatever degrades and destroys it. He hates it as a mother hates the disease that would seek to take the life of her child. And we are called to be holy. 1 Peter 1.16 We are called to be separated unto God for his use to be sanctified, set apart, made holy, as the utensils, the shovels, the spoons and the bowls used in the tabernacle and the temple were made holy and separated for his use only. They were not for common use, nor are we. As his people, we too are sanctified, set apart, made holy in the Christ, a people who no longer belong to the world, but to God, and are separated out from it for his use. Leviticus eleven forty four to forty five Leviticus fifteen two and two Corinthians six seventeen and finally one Peter one fifteen to seventeen. Holiness is always there when God is present, and the injunction always is take off your shoes, for you stand on holy ground. Holiness is usually associated with both fire and light. Exodus 3.5 And God speaks to Moses from the burning bush. As Moses approaches, he is told, Take off your sandals, for the ground on which you stand is holy. Joshua 5.15 And Joshua at Jericho meets the captain of the Lord's army, who says, Take your shoes off. Consider Isaiah's reaction in Isaiah 6 when he sees the Lord high and lifted up and his train filling the temple. His overwhelming impression is the holiness of God which results in his exclamation, Woe is me, I am unclean, I am undone. He is immediately convicted of his own spiritual state. Our grubbiness is brought into relief when we encounter the blazing light of the presence. In the New Testament, Luke 5.8, we find Peter is the same. Humanly speaking, he knew Jesus. But his reaction now is, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. His conviction is instantaneous. He covers himself and turns away. Blessed indeed are we if we have known this type of encounter and conviction. When the presence comes, an awareness of our dingy off-whiteness is apparent. We are instantly convicted as at no other time of our sinful nature. Everything that has yet to be cleansed and dealt with surfaces 
and with Peter we cry, away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. We don't have to think about it, it just happens. It springs from our lips unbidden. This revelation of us is a frightening thing. When it comes, we can't escape it. But until it comes, we are blind men. Until it comes, we're content in our darkness. We're not threatened in our comfortable way of life. But let that ray of light touch us and we are exposed as weak, twisted and deceitful people. There is no health in us. We have learned to live with the unholiness around us. In the light, all argument ceases. We tremble and are silent. We cannot protest. We're undone. The master and the maid, there is no difference. High or low, the light exposes us. We do not like to admit what we are, even to ourselves. That resistance, rebellion, pride and unteachableness that reside within us horrify us when we see it. Light. God can't tell us by language of his holiness. So by association and suggestion, he shows us how his holiness affects the unholy. He shows Moses at the burning bush before the holy fiery presence, kneeling down to take his shoes from off his feet, hiding his face for he was afraid to look on God. He shows Isaiah and is instantly convicted of what comes out of his mouth. The Holy Presence is awful and awesome. It is an awful thing to come face to face with the light. Revelation 1.16 Holiness brings with it the fear of the Lord. It's not fear of punishment. We know Jesus has taken that, but we experience reverent awe in the presence as our true state is revealed and we know it. We are unclean. We are undone. There is a time for partying, but when the presence comes, it's time to remove our shoes from off our feet and adopt the position face down. It's an instinctive reaction to the light. In every encounter with the presence, there is too much light and men fall flat on their faces. Again, when the angels appear, it's always holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty that we hear. Revelation 4 verse 8. The recognition of God's holiness is stated and restated throughout the Bible. It's the crowning jewel among his attributes. His holiness shines on all his other attributes and casts luster on them. Exodus 15:11 and the Song of Moses. They've seen his mighty power and they sing, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. The glory of God is his holiness. In 1 Samuel 2, 1 and 2, we discover the prayer of an ordinary woman in Israel. She says, there is none holy as the Lord. She prays this because she knew him. It's the unique thing about him, she says. None is holy like him. She knows the one of whom she speaks. 2 Chronicles 20, 21, And Jehoshaphat sends out the singers first, praising the Lord in what? The beauty of holiness. It's important that we see the way in which holiness is spoken of and see the context in which it's used. In Psalm 89, 34 and 35, God swears by his holiness. 
In context, he's talking about his covenant with David. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. We could do with a return to an awareness of his holiness in these days. God has a covenant with us through his son. Verse 35, I will not lie to David. An absolute promise, an absolute covenant. God has promised things to Israel by his holiness. God has a covenant with them. They will survive no matter what it looks like now. God cannot lie. These studies must surely make us as 21st century believers more fully aware of his faithfulness towards us. They should increase our faith and trust in him. He is faithful who promised. Hebrews 10 verse 23. God is trustworthy and true. Everything he thinks, everything he does is pure and holy. He is faithful. He is true. There is none like him. Psalm 145, 17 and 18. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. Whatever God has done, he's done it in his holiness. God never ever does anything wrong. The Bible clearly lays out the holiness of God and we need to try to define it. It isn't easy. In fact, it's impossible. It is righteousness, but more than that. Purity, but more than purity. We know what it is, but it's very hard to define it. As I said, we can say what it isn't more easily. Negatively, holiness is the total absence of sin. God is holy. He never errs. He never makes a mistake. But he's more than that just as health is more than the absence of being sick. I know my own sinful nature, so God isn't like me, but that's not good enough either. He's just so not like me. He is absolute righteousness, absolute justice. They most nearly describe holiness for us. Righteousness and justice combined equal holiness as nearly as we can define it. It has a positive and a negative side. The positive side is his righteousness and the negative side, his justice. Absolute righteousness says he is the standard of righteousness, the absolute. Everything has to be measured by him. He is the standard. So don't try to compare him to a moral code of any kind. For example, when God says abortion is wrong, it's wrong. He is the standard. And when he says homosexuality is wrong, it's wrong. He is the standard, not our moral code. God has not changed. He's immutable. He still cannot look upon sin, but equally he loves the sinner. His beloved son has taken the punishment for all sin to make us right with him. It's called justification. It doesn't mean he's overlooking our immorality but he's dealt with it by the cross. Martin Luther encapsulated it like this. I love this. Now, is this not a happy business? Christ, the rich, noble and holy bridegroom, takes in marriage this poor, contemptible and sinful little prostitute, takes away all of her evil and bestows all his goodness upon her. It's no longer possible for sin to overwhelm her for she is now found in Christ and swallowed up by him, so that she possesses a rich righteousness in her bridegroom. 
That is the truth. And it really explains what justification by faith is. A divine exchange. My evil is swallowed up in his goodness. Wherever we miss the mark of his standard, which is what sin is, it separates us from him. It always did and it always will do. He hates it because it separates him from his beloved children. Isaiah 1.18 Unless we get back to his standard for our lives without condemnation, we will never come into the fullness he desires to bestow upon us. He is a giver. He has so much to give his church, but she can't receive it where she stands right now. Something has to change and it surely won't be him. He does not condemn. He gently encourages us to follow him and get really clean, not off-white. And that's part of the process. God wrote the Ten Commandments, the law, so that we might understand something of his holiness. Sin means we're missing the mark of his standard. It's an archery term. It means to miss the mark. The Torah, the law, in rifle shooting terms, would be the sights on the gun. The law is there to show us how far off the target we are. But even the law is a poor reflection of God's holiness. Law is, is another archery term. It was something that helped you hit the target. How kind is that? He gave Israel well, the, the law to help them hit his standard of righteousness. But they missed it, of course, as we do so often. But he's given us help. In 1 John 1, 5 to 10, just as he did to Israel. God wrote the law. He's above the law and he hasn't done away with it. Matthew 5.17 He wrote it. He's above it and he's altogether higher, but he stoops to touch us. John 8.5.11 Sorry, John 8.5-11 A woman is caught in adultery, in the very act it seems, and the religious leaders bring her to Jesus. Testing him, they remind him of the law. Such should be stoned. What do you say? Jesus bends down and writes in the sand as though he hasn't heard them, reminding anyone who could see that he wrote the law in the first place. Then the very heart of God breaks out and he says to her, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. What words of release these were for that woman who knew her own state? What a shock to the religious people who were standing around watching. He invites them to throw the first stone. If they are without sin, and beginning with the eldest, they leave, convicted of their own state. The lesson here is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, always, not sometimes. Verse 11, go woman and sin no more. Romans 2.4 He breaks our hearts and when we see just how dirty we are, we don't want to be dirty anymore. In the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 6 and 7, we see that the religious leaders at the time of Jesus had reduced the law down to externals as though it didn't matter what was written in the letter as long as the envelope was clean. Jesus points out that their righteousness is outward show. He calls them painted tombs and says the righteousness you have isn't shouldn't you should have isn't external but internal because God's looking at the heart they look all right on the outside but inside they're dead 
You have heard it said, he says, but I say this is what the law really meant. And he mixes it with compassion and love and they are nailed and they hate him. Psalm 85.10 Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. It's not about externals, but the heart. And so it is today. God still looks on the heart, not on the outside. The outside can be clean when the inside is still dirty. We need to ask him to deal with the inner man. God, cleanse me on the inside. Back to Isaiah and Peter. Woe is me, I am unclean. When you look on his absolute righteousness, you see that you're dirty inside every single time. There are never any exceptions. Sin then is the absence of holiness. God is absolutely righteous, a positive quality. The negative side is his absolute justice that demands that where there is sin, he must deal with it. This is why there will be a judgment of those who refuse to believe. The price of their sin has been paid, but they would not receive the free gift, so their debt remains. No one goes to the lake of fire that hasn't consciously refused Jesus' sacrifice or his, on his or her behalf. God's justice couldn't allow it, his, but his holiness is offended, so there will be judgment. Ezekiel 36.21 is his holiness in action. For my holy name's sake, I shall be sanctified before their eyes. The day is coming when every injustice will be dealt with. God is love, but he's also absolute justice. The grace of God has provided for every man and woman on the face of the earth. What more can he do? Our God is holy, and that is why judgment is coming. He can never compromise. It was shown on the cross at Calvary. Jesus had obeyed the law all his life. He never sinned. He was full of righteousness and truth. The lamb without spot or blemish. Then the sins of the world were placed on him as our holy scapegoat. And he screamed, Eli, Eli, why have you forsaken me? As he was separated from his father and the Holy Spirit. A stark example of how sin separates us from God. Jesus had never known separation from the Father before. Now he knew what it was to be separated. The sin of the world blacked out the presence of the Father. Unconfessed sin does the same for us. It separates us from the Father. God's holiness must be satisfied. He cannot compromise on it and it was the only solution to our problem. God himself reconciles the world to himself in an act of amazing, unspeakable grace. 2 Corinthians 5.19 is an incredible statement. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. What a statement. Keep in mind Habakkuk 1, 12 and 13. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and cannot look upon wickedness. He can't look upon it. He wanted us back, and he was prepared to pay the price to get us back. What love is this? God has provided for us through the work of Jesus on the cross. There is an exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin bears ours, that we might be made the righteousness of God. God did a swap. 
Jesus paid the price for my sin and gave me his righteousness. This is why I can now come near without fear. Clothed in the garments of salvation, the wedding garment, I approach through Jesus in the name of Jesus. He can look on me because of Jesus. No one else has enough righteousness. So God still demands holiness today. He won't compromise on it. He's producing it in us by his Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 This is God's will for you, your sanctification. God's plan for your life is holiness. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 Be holy in all manner of life. Be righteous. Don't be like them to win them. It never works. Be separate. God's holiness is very important. He wants us to be holy. He wants us to cleanse ourselves. 2 Corinthians 7 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Holiness in our lives will give us boldness and peace. If we're going on with God and keeping short accounts, we will claim 1 John 1 5 to 10 regularly. Knowing that Hebrews 10.17 says, He remembers our sin and our lawless ways no more. Beloved, if he hasn't changed his way of doing things, he hasn't, we have compromised. And we need to recognise this and have our hearts sprinkled. We desperately need to get back to doing things his way. Because in these days, it is his way or no way. So let's just see that the Father is holy. John seventeen twenty five. Jesus addresses him, Holy Father. The Son, Acts three fourteen, and Peter is speaking. And the Holy Spirit is self-evident. He is the Holy Spirit because he manifests the holiness of God more than any other attribute of God. And our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 2.19, the foundation stands sure. Let everyone depart from iniquity. That's the holiness of God. Sanctify us more and more as we go on. In Jesus' name, Father. Amen. Next time, we'll look at the fact that God is eternal. Amen. <laughs>